Well, good morning, Gospel Hope. Good, good. It is wonderful to look out there and see all of your wonderful faces. Um, I believe that today or this morning is going to be installment number six on our series, The Great Escape. And it's uh, pretty cool because we are now in the sixth message and we are going to officially uh, actually see the escape unfold. We've been watching it progressively. And so I'm excited about what the Lord would have us to learn about him as we work through this. And uh, yeah, but first we need to declare our need, shall we? Um, as we do that, I, 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 sorry, I caught you in mid-bow. I saw some heads start getting ready to, to go in, which is, which is a good thing. I love that. Um, have you ever seen, and I'm pretty sure you have, like one of the most heart-wrenching or heartbreaking things is to see a, a baby um, crying. Can't yet speak, but they're, they're crying to try to convey need to a parent. They're pulling, they're reaching, maybe they're on a pants leg, and, they're, and, and, and you know that there's something really specific that the child needs, and they're crying, but they can't express it in words yet, and they're just crying. Isn't that heart-wrenching to see that? It, 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 it does something to you. It's really, and it isn't just, some of you are like, well, no, it happens on a plane, that's annoying. Uh, but no, when you see it in real life, whether you have a connectivity with the child or not, it's heartbreaking. But on the flip side of the coin, isn't it heartwarming to see someone who knows exactly what that cry that was totally unintelligible to you and I, uh, it means? Isn't it heartwarming to see someone who knows exactly what that child needs and they can swoop in and pick them up or hold them in a particular way or give them exactly what they need? Isn't that incredible? Yeah. Well, you know what? The Bible does us a great favor in depicting that our God operates just like that. The, perfect, the person who perfectly knows what's going on in our heart. In Romans chapter 8, this isn't part of the message. This is just kind of our lead up to our prayer. But in Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 17 and following, the Bible tells us that we have not received the spirit to bondage, but a spirit that allows us to cry out, Abba, Father, these special words for our God. And then it goes on further around verse 20-ish and says... And it is by that same spirit that when we cry out, we don't even know what to pray for as we ought to. These are the actual words of the Bible. We don't know what to pray for as we ought to, but the spirit intercedes for us with groanings and utterings that are too deep for words. And so here it is. We are fully articulate adult human beings, but yet we still don't know how to officially and effectively talk to God. But God, as a wonderful parent, has leaped in and said, I'll interpret those cries. Isn't that awesome? So you might not consider yourself to be a master prayer. Uh, you may not consider yourself to be even good at it. I, w the Bible declares that none of us are good at it. Even though we could pull together this beautiful, spiritually sounding preamble, it is the Lord himself that comes in and makes sense of our cries because he knows exactly what we need. Can we cry out to the Lord this morning? Amen. Father God, we come before you. Um, our feeble words are limited to fully express all that we need. Uh, we have some things before us. We desperately desire to hear from you this morning, uh, but we don't know exactly what we need to hear. We've selected a text and we've prepared some things and we've prepared our hearts to come in here. But Lord, you know the full scope of our lives all things included, everything that we have encountered in our past, the things that we are encountering right now today, and the things that we will encounter when we leave this place in our future. And because you understand all that, even as we speak to you now, you're filling in the blanks. You're providing solutions. You're addressing issues of the heart. You're dealing with our circumstances, and we thank you for that. We officially, Lord God, hand ourselves over to you and say, would you please speak to us this morning? Help us to hear from you. Remove anything that would stand in the way, our distractions that we brought with us and the ones that are unique to this environment, the ones that are unique to our culture. Would you help us, oh God, hear from you, please? We beg your blessing on our time together. We pray that we would experience in full what the Bible promises, that wherever two or three are gathered in your name, that you would be there in the midst, that you would make yourself uniquely available. You would abide with us for those that, who would obey you. Lord God, show yourself to us today in a way that we've not seen you before. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen and amen. As I was uh, preparing for this week's message, man, I was, uh, a couple of things came to mind, one of which was a job that I held uh, in the early 1990s. Um, in uh, late, no, early 1990s, so like 91, 92-ish, I would have been about uh, 17, 18, 19 years old, and I was working as a package handler, 
for, at that time, the world's largest package expediter and courier. And uh, I know some of you may say, man, where is this story going? Uh, but actually, Odera can verify some of the details uh, of, of my story. Many of you may need to fact check me uh, on what I'm about to share, but nevertheless. Um, so as we're working, one of the standards for getting the job is that you had, as an unloader, you had to be able to unload at about a rate of 1,100 to 1,200 pieces per hour. And uh, if you really were good at the job and were going to um, not uh, fall behind, you probably need to get up to about 1,300 pieces per hour. And uh, that would allow you in a four-hour period to unload about 20 to 25 trucks, depending on what was loaded on them. And so uh, in the first uh, of the two years that I worked for this company, I remember the first two months was such a fascinating time. Uh, you would uh, let up the back of the truck and you would see like, oh, what's this? A bunch of styrofoam coolers with a biohazard marker on them. You know, what is that about? Uh, you'd let up another one. And remember, again, you got to go back in the sands of time. This is the 1990s. You would see computer monitors, you know, it was 30, 40 pounds a piece, you know, plus the box and the styrofoam. These things are massive, right? And, uh, you know, maybe this truck has a hundred of those. Well, again, guess what the next truck had in it? It had the tower that goes with them. You know, that's 19, 20 pounds. And then you let up another door and it'd be, you know, oh, this is going to be easy truck. It's just envelopes. Oh, but there's 20,000 of them. This is obviously a company that uses, you know, this company to deliver their payroll checks because at this time, not the majority of the culture was on direct deposit, right? You were waiting on to get that check in the mail. Um, and then so you would go to the next truck and, ooh, it's a bunch of steel pipe elbows. And you know, they're like 50, 60, 70 pounds a piece. And then you go to the next one and the next one. You can kind of see where I'm going. Well, in the first few months, again, the job was fascinating because you would read packages and it's like, oh, what does this company do, right? Uh, you would do all this kind of stuff. But eventually, you recognize you had a job to do, right? It was delivery. And we were serious about delivery and we were serious about on-time delivery. And so all of that specific focus on handling package in specific ways and getting curious about where they were going and where they were coming from, that began to fade away and you just developed about four top priorities. Speed, strength, Gatorade, and go home. Right? And that, that just was the agenda. Speed, strength, Gatorade, and go home. And, uh, and so once you get in that gear and you throw the, the door up on this truck, you're like, all right, let's get it. Which gear am I in? Am I in speed gear? Am I in strength gear? And so you're just going. You're just going and you're going. And I'll be honest with you, there were moments, man, where I really felt somewhat guilty by the way I handle certain packages. This is a, this is a real transparent moment for me. Uh, because there were times when, man, I was like, I just sailed a computer about five feet in the air before it hit the belt, right? Or I just sailed this, you know, I don't know, looks like maybe blood plasma or some other dry ice that spilled out of this package when it hit the belt, right? Uh, again, I'm not naming any companies here, uh, but, but you would just, you just get in there and you're just going, man, and it's like, what are we doing? I was like, well, I'm just trying to deliver. I'm trying to get out of here. I'm trying to go because if I found a package that was supposed to be in Singapore or Birmingham the next day, it was like, I just found this at nine o'clock at night. It's got to be there by 9 a.m. the next day. I got to move and I got to move in a hurry. And so I begin to feel probably what many of you feel in certain moments. Like I would love to have this tender and gentle customer service type of demeanor toward each package and with white gloves just to gently lay it down on the conveyor. But I got to go home. I got to deliver. I got a job to do. I got to get it done. I, I tell this story because it reminds me of probably one of the great, I guess you want to call it conundrums or dichotomies or tensions in the character. You felt this too if you were never a package handler. How many of you on your jobs, you want to be a good leader but you can't find that right tension between being liked by your employees and being respected. Do I come in with the hammer or am I the gentle guy, the Pied Piper that everybody wants to follow? Maybe as a parent, you struggle to be the loving, caring, supportive, uh, affirming parent. But on the other side, you recognize the need for strategy, for structure, for discipline, or else they'll start to parent you. Right? I mean, you, 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 in, in every space in life, maybe as a spouse or maybe in all of your relationships, man, how do I be, how do I be honest but not hurtful? Right? It's just hard to pick the right tool. And, and, and I'll tell you this, it, this is just 
a human dynamic. We have a hard time being what we would call omnicompetent or being all the things that we need to be in every single moment. It just seems impossible. Well, the beautiful thing that I'm encouraged about in today's passages as we read is that I see a God who, yes, several chapters ago, came into Egypt with literally a wrecking ball and just to start to dismantle theologies and structures of idol gods and idol systems, rearranged the landscape with plagues. I mean, he was just coming through with the steamroller. But then at the same time, with the, the, the diligence of a surgeon's scalpel, he carves out a little space in Goshen and says, now this is for Israel. And I'm so wonderfully encouraged by the fact that my God knows how to use both the sledgehammer and the scalpel. And he uses them with both beautiful accuracy and discipline. I believe that this is a necessary thing to appreciate about our God. We're going to see it emanate from the text today because he wants us to know him as a Lord who is just as considerate as he is capable He's not the teenage package handler who just wants to get the job done and get his people out of Israel on a certain clock or get his people out of Egypt on a certain clock. He is a God who also wants to do it in a very certain way that has perfect and beautiful consideration of who his people are. The Lord is just as considerate as he is capable. Now, this might sound like an obvious conclusion to you that doesn't demand any deep theological contemplation, but here's why this message is necessary. It is human for us to associate our inabilities to live in both spaces, the sledgehammer and the scalpel, the, 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 the steamroller and the, the Kleenex. It is, it is our inability to function equally well in those spaces that we often impose on God himself. And because we will impose those kind of uh, debilitations on God himself, it affects how we are willing to trust him. It affects how we're willing to pray to him. It affects how we're willing to, to, to go before God and, and even ask for things. If you listen to yourself, oftentimes we pump the brakes just shy of what we think God can and can't do. And really our definitions of what God can and cannot do are based on our own personal inabilities that we've imposed on God. It is entirely human. It is one of the deficiencies of the fall to take our fallenness and let that be the lens through which we interpret God's own capabilities. And I want you to understand that God is just as considerate as he is capable. He is fully considerate of your past, your present, and all of those other features that would affect um, how you got to where you are today and where he wants to take you. So let's dive into the Bible and find out exactly where this whole notion is coming from. I want you to hear something with new ears if you've already read the story. Uh, it says here in Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 through 22, you've heard it from Bill, but I want to walk it slowly for you here. It says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not let lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Isn't that beautiful? Soak in that for just a moment. Here is the God who can do anything. Here is the God who can whip anyone. Here is the God who has no limitations, but the God who looks at his people and says, I don't want them to go the most convenient route because I don't want them to see war and they are emotionally distracted lest they become fearful and run back to Egypt. I'm here to tell you today that, that this doesn't just apply to Israel, it also applies to you, that the Lord is this. He is just as capable of managing my emotional need as he is for my physical need for a way out. The Bible would later express it this way in the Psalms, in Psalm 103 and verses 14, it says, for he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. This is beautifully comforting to me because so many times in life, as I'm thinking about the way that God is handling things or what I believe to be his slowness to handle things, I begin to ask, is he really considerate? Does he really see me right now? Does he fully understand how much I'm struggling in this particular moment? Does he understand the pinch? Well, the story of the Bible and the pattern of God's behavior toward his people would suggest absolutely yes. He is 
fully considerate and he is fully capable. And so just because he is not going the route that is the most convenient or he is not doing it in a way that I would forecast or recommend or prescribe to him doesn't mean God isn't active in our lives. As a matter of fact, it should raise our awareness and our ability to worship him and say, well, Lord, if you're doing it differently, there must be something that you see that would affect me negatively if you did it some other kind of way or if you did it my way. Can we trust God in that way? I mean, as a matter of fact, uh, here's what the, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter four, if we fast forward into the New Testament, it says for, uh, in, in uh, chapter four, verse 15, it says, for we do not have a high priest talking about Jesus who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive, uh, receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. This is the description of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in other words, God double downs in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ. He not only says, from heaven do I see the, that your frame is dust and that you are a fragile package with infinite value that no one else understands, but I want you to understand not only am I handling your life with full consideration of how fragile you are, but I have sent my son Jesus Christ to actually do life in your shoes and to experience the full scope of human temptation and even the things that impact human life so that you would not believe that the person sitting in the front office doesn't understand your pain. How many of us have felt that? Have you ever maybe called a company looking for a little bit of customer service and you could tell by the feedback you were getting that this person really doesn't get it? That they, they hear the words that are coming out of your mouth but they don't feel your pain. How many of us have confided in a friend and asked them to help us in a certain situation and while they understood, again, the words coming out of your mouth, they did not fully respect the weight of what you were going through. And you could tell, even though they were trying to be nice, it just felt somewhat disconnected or even condescending. Has anybody ever felt that? How many of us, even in our relationships, maybe with our parents, have felt, um, I mean, just we just, we, we just lost the inclination to call and to reach out to anybody because we didn't feel like anybody fully understood us. Well, I'm here to tell you today that the Bible declares that in the Lord Jesus Christ, we do not have a high priest who does not understand us. As a matter of fact, one of the most staggering passages of Scripture from the book of Hebrews in chapter 5, I believe it is, uh, that, 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 that I've ever come across, was one where it says, that the Lord Jesus Christ, although he were a son, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. I mean, it blew my socks off because I couldn't imagine anything that the Lord Jesus Christ needed to learn. But the Father is so committed to letting us know that our Savior is not uh, uh, a stoic, that our Savior is not separate from the emotional weight of what it means to be one of us. Like the incarnation isn't just a great magic trick. It isn't a trick at all. It isn't even a miracle. It is the commitment of God to say to his people, I see you, I hear you, but guess what? Man, I feel you. The Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, during his earthly ministry, he felt betrayal. Betrayal is amplified by the degree to which the person claims to be close to you, right? Right? I mean, we all expect to be knifed in the back by people who gave us the side eye uh, from day one. But when your closest disciple denies you three times, when, when, when the people who leaned upon your breast at the, at the last supper were nowhere to be found at the moment of your crucifixion, Jesus knows what it means to be betrayed. He wept when Lazarus died. You understand? The Lord knows what it means to wear great disappointment. He understands that. And so in Christ, we not only have a Lord who is capable of managing my emotional need as well as he is my physical need for a way out, but I should remember this, that I should remember that God may do things in my life that are not the most comfortable or the most convenient, but they are fully and truly the most considerate. 
I'll say that again. I should remember that God may do things in my life that are not the most comfortable nor the most convenient at the time, but they are definitely the most considerate. Going back to our story, remember, when he led Israel out, he said, I could have, the, the closest route, the most convenient route would have been to take them a certain way, but they would have seen war and the Lord was delicate with them and didn't want to take them that way. Isn't that awesome that a God with that much power is still handling his people with that much intimate and close care? Well, guess what? That isn't just Israel's benefit. That's also yours if you are in Christ. We should be encouraged by a God who, who has that kind of compassion and capability in his divine tool belt, if you will, to handle our lives. So, as we move to chapter 14, this is where we really uh, begin to pick up speed in some of the things that are happening in the passage. Uh, in chapter 14, uh, verses 1 through 19, and just to kind of tell you the story, uh, this is when uh, the Lord then calls on Moses and says, all right, well, here's how it's actually going to go down. You may not have all this on the screen, so I'll tell you the story. So he says, all right, you're going to, you know, you're going to go and you're going to lead the people out and uh, Egypt is going to, you know, obviously they're going to come up to the rear, they're going to come behind and the folks are going to feel sandwiched in and, and then I'm going to deliver them and I'm going to get honor over Pharaoh. I'm going to simultaneously be glorified in, in all of this. And so then the Lord, uh, uh, specifically, look at uh, verses uh, 6 through 9. Here's just a brief snippet. Exodus chapter 14, verses 6 through 9. Hear this carefully. It says, so he made ready his chariots. This is talking about Pharaoh, right? He made ready his chariots and he took his army with him and he took 600 chosen chariots and over all the chariots of Egypt and the officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. And the Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and the chariots and the horsemen uh, and his army overtook them as they were encamped by the sea. And at Piho Horatham, and then in front of Baal Zephon. And then it says to us in, in verses, skip down to verses 13 through 18, and Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. And the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again, and the Lord will fight for you, but you only have to be silent. Well, do you know what happened in between those verses that I just read for you? Is that Israel came back to Moses and said, oh my goodness, you led us out here and we told you this was going to happen. We're out here in the wilderness now or we're out here in this, in this open area. We're going to be crushed. Wouldn't it have been better that we have just died in Egypt? Let us serve. Let us, let us just go back to the way we were. Now, you might be saying, well, that's so ridiculous. Do you know why you and I think that that kind of commentary from Israel is ridiculous? Because we already know the end of the story. When you're living the story, when you're currently in something and it seems as if God has taken you on a path that not only was the most, it seems to be somewhat inconvenient for your own interpretation, but it also seems to be the most challenging, we will say to ourselves, man, should I have ever done this? Maybe for some of you say, man, should I have ever come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Should I have ever even committed myself to this life in Christ? Because it seems as if I have more challenges externally than I had before. And this is exactly what the adversary loves to do, especially in the lives of new believers or old school believers who are entering into new chapters of life that God wants to show himself in a mighty and an incredible way. We will often find ourselves wanting to go back to the way things were. Lord, can I just go back to how I was? I know this is not a best case scenario, but it seems better than where I am now. This temptation is not just Israel's. It seems ridiculous when you know the end of the story, but for those of us who find ourselves in challenging moments of life, it doesn't seem all that ridiculous when you're in the clutches of feeling like your life is at risk by way of following God. Has anybody ever been at a place where your efforts to obey God seem to get you in more hot water than you planned for? Seem to take you on a more difficult route than you had prayed about. It seems to be all grind and no glory. Has anybody in here ever felt that in trying to obey God? It's a real space in life. 
Here's what I believe the Lord would have us to know, though. The Lord is just as aware of my wounds as he is of my wars. You see, the war that Israel has before them is the one that is coming up behind in the form of Egypt and all of its army and all of its chariots and all of the, the horsemen and, the, and, the, and the, the groups that are coming up behind them. And I think the Bible, is the Holy Spirit is so beautiful and so genius in the way that he gives us this contrast between what Pharaoh is working with and what God's people are working with. I don't know if you caught it, but when we described every time in the story, when the Bible describes the armaments of Egypt, they talk about the total number of chariots and horsemen and people that are coming after Israel. Now, if you remember Israel's condition, they are not a mighty military group. They're a huge group, but they have no war skill. They've been making bricks. They are on the bottom of the bottom when it comes to the socioeconomic food chain. And the Bible says that they were equipped for war. Well, what could have possibly been their equipment? Their equipment was God himself because Moses said, stand still and see the salvation of your Lord. I need to understand that the Lord is just as aware of my wounds. That is the things that have happened to me in the past that have left me scarred, that have disabled in some regards my ability to fully trust God. He is fully aware of my wounds. He is fully aware of everything from my past that would serve as an impediment to trusting what he has to say to me now. God is fully aware of everything that has happened to you. The unlawful termination, the molestation. The, 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 the broken marriage, the, 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 the incredibly derogatory dad or mom who never supported or believed in you, the, the, the rough upbringing, the unmentionable things that you felt like you had to do to make it by or out, the attempted suicides, the contemplations of taking your own life that reoccur on a regular basis. He is fully aware of the wounds and the things that have happened that no one else in this room can see or know about, and they affect the way that you are prepared to war today. And those wounds speak to you loudly. They scar you deeply. But God says, that's part of your past. And that is exactly what I'm trying to deal with if you will trust me. The Lord is just as aware of my wounds as he is of my wars. The Lord not only is aware of my wounds, but he's so wonderfully aware of my wounds that in Isaiah chapter 6, uh, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 3, he says this. This is, this is the words of Isaiah, but they were quoted by Christ uh, kind of as he entered into the synagogue in his earthly ministry. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. That word there, to bind up the brokenhearted, or in the New Testament, it said he sent me to heal the brokenhearted. It's literally a group of people whose heart has been shattered like a piece of ancient pottery, and there's undescribable numbers of pieces everywhere on the floor. And he says, I came to not sweep that up in the dustpan and pretend like it didn't happen, but I came to heal that, to pull it back together in a way that doesn't even show the cracks from the past. This is what it means for God to say, I came to heal the brokenhearted in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is fully aware of my wounds. He says, I came to declare or to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and to the opening the prisons of those that are blind and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn Zion and to give to them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called the oaks of righteousness and the plant of the Lord that he may be glorified. Ladies and gentlemen, your wounds are the precursors to your worship. It is the very stuff that God wants to gather up and beautifully mend so that when you look at yourself in the mirror, you say, wow, God did this. Not the latest book that I read. Wow, the Holy Spirit has healed me in this way. And then you become this precious plant or this beautiful artifact in the, the curio cabinet of God that the world can look at and say, that is such a beautiful piece. Where'd you get that? God made this and you won't believe what I used to look like. The Lord is just as aware of my wounds as he is my wars and the things that face me. 
As a matter of fact, my wounds are a crucial part of his focus. In this moment, look at what the, the Lord says to Moses. So the people come and they cry to Moses and they say, man, you should have left us where we were, right? You should have left us where we were. You should have let us die there. It would have been better than just dying out here in the open where there are actually no graves. And this is the lie that Satan will tell us, that, that, to move for, that the difficulty to move forward in God is worse, than, that is worse than staying back where you were in your old situation. And this is a complete lie. This is an emotional play that the adversary tries to strum on all of our hearts to get us to no longer trust in God. But our God is fully ready and waiting. And But look at what he says when Moses comes and says, hey, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Watch God come through on your behalf. And then God says this in, in um, chapter, excuse me, chapter 14, verses 13 through 18. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm for the salvation of the Lord, which he will work out today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall not see ever again. And the Lord will fight for you. And you only have to be silent. And then in verse 15, uh, it says, and the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians that they may go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know, here it is again, shall know that I am the Lord God when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. The equipment that the adversary is using to box his people in are also part of the story. So when you get that phone call, that final notice, or that next notice, or that fifth or sixth notice, that, that constant stream of bad news, save it. Xerox copy it. Post it up on your wall and wait for God to use it. Wait for God to pull it down and show that he is God over all that bad news with his one stroke of good news. Don't ever be afraid of the, of the things that, that are part of your past that the adversary tries to bring forward because while the adversary tries to bring it forward as an indictment, God grabs hold of it as an enlightenment as to what he can do. So we don't have to ignore our past. We just have to officially hand it over like dependent children to God so that he can re-engineer it as a part of a grand story as to why he should be known as the one true God who is over all things, not just some things. I want you to notice from an application standpoint that the Lord is not only aware of their wounds, he's not only aware of their wars and the things that they have to, they have to work through. But he's, uh, look at this, this is God's equipment for us in the New Testament. So they were told to stand still and watch the salvation of the Lord, but in the New Testament, we're told to do this. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers and over the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand, here it is that language again. If you're standing, keep standing. Stand still and watch this. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes on your feet uh, having been shod with the readiness given by the gospel of peace that in all circumstances that you may take up the shield of faith which can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Take up the helmet of salvation and in the sword of the spirit which is the word of God praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication and to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. So this idea of standing still and seeing the salvation of the Lord is even echoed for us and given even more emphasis in the New Testament. The Lord asks us to put on the whole armor. And if we look at the armor, these spiritual pieces that we are prompted to put on are just simply aspects of God's own work and character. 
Notice he didn't say rub your fists and go like this, you know, to try to get some kind of special power. He says the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, shod your feet with the gospel. In other words, Moses, take the rod that I gave you and raise it up and divide the seas. Believer, contemporary believer, take the word that I've given you and wave it to the situation. Not like a magic wand, but as my word, which will work. Put on the attributes that I have allowed you to participate in. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. I'm so glad to see our doctors here today. Uh, a talk of, uh, I wish I could just pull you guys up on stage. I won't do it because I know I'm classic for like getting people involved in the illustrations. But one of the things that I remember, one of the great faux pas of being a patient was when I would get that, is it a Z-pack? What's that five or six pack of pills that you're supposed to take when you have something? The Z-pack? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not a doctor, but I like to play one on Sunday. Um, and so uh, uh, you get the Z-pack, right? And boom, boom, you hit like two of them boys. And I'm like, I'm feeling fine. I'm headed to work and I'm stopped taking the other three. As a matter of fact, I'm going to save those for the next time I get sick. And what happens? I get sick again. And then I find out that, oh, I was supposed to take the full pack in order to get the full, the full import of the, mess, the medicine, right? How often as we are, we are told to simply take the medicine that I gave you, and we decide to only take the pieces that give us relief in the near term, but not put on the full armor. Do you hear me? When we're going through things, we think some stuff is too simple and too easy. That can't work. I need something more dynamic. And we stop taking what God gave us because it seems too individually simplistic. But let's borrow from the very illustration that God himself gave us. How many of us, if you knew someone who was headed off to war and they said, I don't need my helmet today because I don't think any bullets will be coming above the shoulders. I'm just going to wear my armor. How many of us would think it would be ridiculous for a person to say, oh, we're not going into the swamps like the boys did in Vietnam. We're going to go in the desert. I'm not wearing my boots. I'm just going to go with some Timberlands. Like how many of us would feel that it's absolutely ridiculous for someone to decide that they can interpret where the war is going to have the most impact and therefore only partially put on the armor? But do you realize that that same level of ridiculousness that you just participated in with that illustration is the same level of ridiculousness that we participate in when we pick and choose what portions of the armor we're going to have emphasis on in our lives? So when we're told by the scriptures to put on the whole armor, let's put on the whole armor. And let's apply the whole armor in the way that the scriptures tell us to do it. Once I'm fully dressed, stand and stand therefore. And then use the armor in the right way. Use the shield of faith to offset the flames and the, the flaming arrows of the, of, the, of the evil one. And if they're arrows, that means it's not close combat. He's doing that from a distance. The actual sword that is used in the, uh, uh, the, the, the Roman soldier's armor, uh, there's two different words for sword. There's a really long one, which I think is pronounced a ramphaya, which we would probably think like the Conan Barbarian, this type of thing. But the actual word there is the machaira which is a small dagger-like close quarters combat type of thing. So getting skilled with the word of God means that there are both distant threats that we need to be able to ward off with our faith, but then there are close threats that we need to learn how to deal with by understanding God's word and becoming more skilled with it. I mean, hey, in the great gun control debate, what's the problem? Many people believe that the average citizen who might own their own gun would end up hurting themselves for lack of knowing how to use it well. Not let, don't let that be our tragedy when it comes to utilization of the word of God. Let's not just be scripture quoters. Let's be people who are skilled in the utilization of God's word. The Lord is just aware of my wounds as he is of my wars. We are told by God in the, in the passage, this pattern of behavior, when he talks to Moses, he says, don't cry out to me. Put up your rod. We are told in the same way, Put on Christ. Put on the whole armor. So before we go looking for an exotic and crazy solution to our most recent crisis, put on what God has already put in our hands. Put it on and put it on holistically. Here's what I want you to know in just closing this point out. The Lord himself has equipped us to escape the past that we might do battle in the present through consistent practice of his presence. Each one of the pieces of the armor are a unique participation in God's presence. We need to spend time with God 
and specifically resting, soaking in, and meditating on those attributes that all make up parts of the armor. This is a part of our battle plan, even if we don't see any arrows coming at the moment. Let's take a look at the next segment. In Exodus chapter 14, verses 19 through 25, it says, Then the angel of the Lord, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea, uh, uh, drove back the sea with an east wind all night, and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went through in the midst of the sea and on the ground, and the waters uh, being a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued them and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and the cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging the wheels of their chariots, so now the ground is muddy again, so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel. The Lord fights for them and is against the Egyptians. In this stretch of scripture, I think it's important to note the following. The Lord is just as active in ensuring our safety as he is his own glory. Throughout the, this kind of narrative, uh, you've been hearing God saying, and Israel shall know, or excuse me, and Egypt shall know, they shall know, they shall know that I am God. They shall know that I am God. But the Lord is just as equally engaged and concerned, not only that, that Egypt would know that he is the Lord, but also that Israel is safe. One of the features that he built in, this constant presentation of of God's own loving care was that he had a pillar of fire by day and a and cloud and a cloud and excuse me a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day to lead them. So this is a this is a beautiful illustration of God's uh, commitment, both both the reality of the Egyptian story, the Exodus, but also our current reality. The Lord says, regardless of the time of day, regardless of the darkness of night, regardless of the terrain, God's constant readiness to lead us in ways that are specific to the time and the environment that we need. Is that not beautiful? The Lord does that today through the wonderful and incredible ministry of the Holy Spirit. The book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 13, verses 5 through 9, uh, keep, uh, keep your life free of the love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear. What can man do to me? Not only wherever the spirit of the Lord is, is there incredible confidence that the Lord will take care of us and he will be our helper, but even passages like 2 Corinthians 3.17 for my note takers and also Romans 8.14 align uh, enlighten us to the fact that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is peace. So he doesn't just have to take us to a peaceful place. He can provide peace in the moment of great turmoil. Do not forget that when Israel walked through the water, when they walked through the tumultuous uh, 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 Red Sea, it was no longer tumultuous. It was a wall on either side and the ground that they walked on was dry. The Lord created through his presence a corridor for his people. And the Bible wanted us to know for certain that the ground they walked on was dry. It was paved. It was the route. It was the way that God made for them. And the scriptures also wanted us to know that when the enemy came through, it became muddy. And so... The Bible would have us to know that the Lord is equally active, just as active in ensuring our safety as he is his own glory. This is a God who is just as capable as he is considerate. He isn't just out to make a name for himself. He is also out to have a people for himself. And that's you and I. These broken chariots and confused troops remind me of another passage of scripture, Romans chapter 6. Verses three through six, it tells us that, do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death and we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that Christ, just as he was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know, listen to this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So the Bible in the New Testament uses this imagery, this gesture, that we have been baptized with Christ and that when we are in Christ, that our old self the one that used to say, man, just stay where you are. It's more comfortable here. Our old self, the wounds, the places where we were most damaged in life, our old self, the one that loves and enjoys sin so deeply, our old self is the one that the Lord lures into the waters and completely collapses on so that there is no longer an attachment. Trusting the Lord is this. Trusting the Lord and being identified with Christ frees us from our past to new life for his glory. So then we must ask a question. If, 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 if this is true, that to trust the Lord is to be baptized with Christ, to be identified with him is to be baptized with him, we must ask ourselves a question. Why do I still feel temptation to sin if the old man has died, if the old self has been crushed, if the old habits have been dealt with? Why do I still feel that? I love the fact that the, that the Holy Spirit uses the bondage language to help us to appreciate this. I would ask the same question, that it is the same reason that in our country, uh, for those who are released from the penal system, we have the highest rates of recidivism. Now, let's just have an honest and frank conversation. Why do people go back to prison after they've gotten out? Let's, let's take off the table, oh, because they're bad people, right? Because we're all bad people, right? In, in some respect, right? We all have some kind of damaging thing going on in our heart. But why do people, what most likely, what is the number one reason that people go back? It's because they try to come out and do life and realize that they still have the old identity. You're a felon. You can't work here. You're a felon. You can't live here. You're a felon. You won't be able to make any money here. Therefore, what does the felon do? The person who has come out of the incarcerated situation says, man, it might not be ideal, but at least it's, I'm accustomed to it. It may not be optimal, but at least I'm, it's practical. I can just go back to prison and get meals. It, I might want to be looking over my shoulder every day, but man, it sure is better than life out here where I have no work. I have no identity. I have these constant reminders of the past. You must say, well, Pastor, what are you doing? You doing some kind of social justice thing? No. What I'm doing here is reminding us that each one of us that have been released from the prison of our own depravity, the reason that we're so tempted to go back is because we have not lunged forward in the work that God has for us. You understand that we have been freed not just for the sake of freedom. We have been freed from bondage for his glory to do his work. And so when people find meaningful work in Christ, the meaningful work begins to crush the practicality of the old life in the past. And so when we're not on mission, of course going back to the old life seems to be more practical because we ain't doing nothing for God that validates our freedom. And so if we want to avoid recidivism of our own, we must ask ourselves, am I doing the things that I've been freed for? Am I fully participating in the works that have been prepared for me beforehand? Because without them, my five senses will just say, life as you had it was pretty pleasurable. It might not be optimal, but at least it was comfortable. But when we are regularly experiencing the victory of God, bringing us through uncomfortable places, his glory regularly showing up, his honor regularly being had, we do not want to go back to the past, even if it is more comfortable. We say, Lord, I'd rather see your glory worked out in my life. Let's just be honest with ourselves. Let's just be honest. I won't ask for a poll. I won't ask for a showing of hands. But how many people will be willing to admit that the seasons of greatest spiritual backslide in your life have come on the heels of not doing or not being where you were supposed to be in Christ? Look at King David sitting up, not actively involved as a king or as a warrior, leading God's people. This is when he saw the pornographic images of Bathsheba and decided to go and make it his reality. He wasn't busy for Jesus. Let's keep it moving. 
These final two verses are, are, are quite powerful. These final two verses say this in Exodus chapter 14, verses 30 and 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians on the seashore. And Israel saw the great power of, that God had used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. I want you to know this, that the Lord is just as aggressive in cultivating our faith as he is in accomplishing our salvation. I want you to consider all this lifting that we've been going through from chapter to chapter, starting with Exodus chapter 1. Here it is, the ten plagues and all of the devastation and the havoc and this, this whole methodology of opening up the sea and letting people, his people walk through on dry ground and then collapsing the sea on his enemies and allowing them to not only see all that, that, that liturgy of God's glory from the first plague through the tenth, but now allowing them to see their oppressors washed up on the seashore. These images were important to the cultivation of Israel's faith. And I want, you to, I want you to hear me carefully. While your salvation comes by grace, God gifts it. We don't deserve it. He gives it. Our faith is actively cultivated by the things that we see and understand. And so, yes, we are saved by grace, but God is also tilling the soil of our heart and he is cultivating. There are certain things that he wants us to see. How many of you have ever, and I pray that this is not part of your experience, maybe been involved in a car accident? And on the inside of the accident, it was, you know, it was, it was traumatic. But then you turned around and went to get all your spare change and your personal belongings out at the wrecker yard, and you saw the external wreckage of that vehicle, and you said, wow, God, this is what you kept me inside of? This is the wreckage of what just happened to me? Has anybody had that experience? I pray that you don't, but I'm pretty sure you have some kind of pictures in your mind where, where you see the wreckage of your past, and when you see that, it is powerful in cultivating your faith. As a matter of fact, how much more powerful is it to see yourself outside of a crumpled up vehicle than it is to watch those old school Volvo commercials of it hitting a wall and the airbag busting out and the dummy doing that? Right? I mean, that's, I mean, that, that's, I mean, that'll make me buy your brand, but it don't boost my faith. Does that make sense? And so the equipment of the faith is good to know how to use. But it is when we see God crushing the issues of the past that real faith is cultivated in our lives. So I'm telling you, don't be afraid of your past. Watch God crush it so that your faith in him is cultivated. One of the great instruments of the adversary, one of the things that he uses in his tool belt is shame, secrecy, and ignorance. He likes for us to run from the details of our past he likes for us to ignore the wreckage of our past. But the Lord says, no, I want you to look squarely at it. I want you to come to the junkyard of what I'm dealing with in your life and look at what I have brought you through. The Lord is just as aggressive in cultivating our faith as he is in accomplishing our salvation. I'll say this to you as a, as a final point. Uh, um, the Bible communicates it this way. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses uh, 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Then he set, aside, set it aside, nailing it to the cross. And verse 15, beautiful, soak in this, hear this, drag this one out. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities by putting them to open shame and triumphing over them in him. A crucial part of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is to serve an embarrassing and defeating blow to all that would seek to entrap us. The cross of Christ isn't just a beautiful piece of jewelry. It isn't just a wonderful uh, historical event. It should be a constant reminder that God crushes anything that tries to keep his people from experiencing the full beauty and joy of what it means to live for him. He crushes the enemy. He embarrasses the enemy. He does what modern soccer parents would call bullying to the enemy. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about when the coaches get those emails. They ran the score up 13 to 1. You haven't got there yet. <laughs> Keep living. 
They're doing it. They're doing it. But the Lord runs up the score on the enemy, intentionally crushing them. Why does he do it? By his grace, there are certain things from your past and mine that need to go to the grave as a crucial part of building your faith. There are things that have happened in our lives that we need to see God give a watery grave and the dismemberment wash up on the seashore so that we know we are officially free from that. And he wants us to have front row seats. How he does it, what the methodology is, I don't know. But the Lord wants to crush anything that's trying to keep you in your past or hostage to the past and give fresh bleeding to your wounds. Because he wants us to be free to serve him and to worship him. And he wants to cultivate faith. So, so salvation comes by grace, but the cultivation of our faith is a work. And what I hope you can appreciate in this regard is that God is fully considerate of your frame, my frame. He knows how much temptation that I can tolerate. He knows how much weight each one of our individual shoulders can bear. I believe it's 1 Corinthians, I know it's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, right? There is no temptation taking you that is uncommon to man, but, but God with the temptation, it says that he is faithful, he himself. It is, a, it is an accent of his faithfulness that he builds into every moment of trial a way of escape that we might endure. There is something about the, the up close and personal watching God work out rough stuff in our lives that is crucial to the cultivation of our faith. You can appreciate it this way. How many of us as parents or maybe even as cousins, brothers, wherever you are in your life, you have great concern from those that have never gone through anything. Like you have these, you have uh, uh, young people. I, I'll, just, I'll just go in real quick. I often... Uh, I, I praise God for the life that my wife and I have been able to provide for our children. But I'm often wondering, like, man, what, what must I do to replicate the idea of pushing a lawnmower with no self-propel? Or, or, or cutting a grass in a way that you can't ride and you can't do circles, you can't cut your name out there. Like, Lord, what must I do to bring in this kind of historic work ethic that came from the 1980s? Where is the proverbial paper route? Where is the chopping of wood? Right? All of our fireplaces are gas lit. Right? Where, where is the wheelbarrow that will fall over if you don't balance it? Right? Everything is just so easy to me. Right? But again, you know what I'm talking about. There are these little stations where we know that the grind is part of the glory. But glory be to God that he is not absent regardless of how, much, how technologically advanced we get as a people. In salvation, he always knows the right sequence to build the right kind of faith teeth. And trust that. Don't run from difficulty. Run to God in difficulty and see what he says. He might just say, take that umbrella I gave you and put it up. Take that armor I gave you and put it on. Take the rod I gave you and wave it. So, I would say this, for those of you who are sitting here listening to this and you're, you're wondering, well, 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 that sounds awesome, almost sounds fairy tale-ish, and it's not a fairy tale. Life has tough moments that we cannot get through in our own strength. But it isn't even, it, it's not just about tough moments. Life has a reality that none of us can escape by our own power. That's why the products in our market that promise youth, or at least some appearance of it, vitality, pleasure, and paradisical living, the reason that those products soar off of the shelves is because they are the unique provision of the gospel. The Lord doesn't offer plastic surgery. He offers eternal life. The Lord isn't selling a new treadmill. He's offering his spirit, something that is life-giving from the inside out. The Lord isn't offering a new fangled diet guaranteed to help you get those last few pounds off your midsection. He is providing us with faith or asking us to have faith in the work of the resurrection because the resurrection addresses all the brokenness and the depravity of this spirit, this soul, and this body that is woefully disconnected from him. All that we desire for in this life is a reflection of our disconnection from God. Everything, the hairstyle we chose, the makeup we chose, the school we went to, all of it is an effort. I'm not saying it's vanity, but it's all an effort to try to enhance or to overcome some area of life that only God can ultimately fix. And God isn't just trying to fix it, he wants to redeem it. 
And he calls us to know this about him, that he has fully considered the state of his creature. He recognizes that the world is broken and that the, the headlines are filled with evidences and echoes of that brokenness. And he says, I know it's broken. Bring those lives to me and let me redeem them. And he's calling us not to religion, but to have faith in his death, his burial, and resurrection, beautifully carried out by his son, so that we would know that God loves us, looks at us carefully, and has considered the brokenness of our frame and says, I am your savior. I'm your only savior. I see your difficulty, and I have come not only to talk about it or to counsel you, but I want to embrace you fully and to bring you out of it. He asks us, he appeals to us, he begs us to come and to know his son, Jesus Christ, in his voluntary death that was done substitutionarily on our behalf because it should have been us. And then he was raised in victory from the grave. Raised in victory so that he might have victory over sin, death, and the devil. And the Bible says he wants us to participate in that same victory. So the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ isn't just done for us. It is being done to us and he wants us to experience it fully with him. And so, I would ask that we would just simply bow our heads and ask ourselves, Lord, where am I pursuing wholeness in ways other than what you provide? I would ask that we, that, that we, that we bow our heads and we, we even, as a point of application, if there is a part of your past that is currently speaking and trying to interrupt what God would do in your life in the present, I would like for you to pray with someone next to you. I would like for you to pray with someone. And if there's nobody in here that you know well enough to pray in that way, then pray earnestly before God your, yourself. But if you're willing, I would like for everyone in here, uh, just as a, as, a, as a practice for this, I want you to think about, is there something from your past that is holding you back from the kind of present power that God would have you to live out? Is there something from your past that's an obstacle to your present? It keeps speaking as to why you can't do that. Is there something from your past that is causing you to take your own brokenness and frailties and to impose them on God? I would ask that you would pray about that area in your life. Pray about that. Say, Lord, Lord, help me to see that, that, that even if it's uncomfortable, it's fully considerate. Ask the Lord to show you his tender care for your frail frame. Ask the Lord to show you where there, there is areas in your lives where you are running back to Egypt because it seems more ideal, even though you know it's not optimal. Ask the Lord to show you those areas of your life. And we're going to come back with one more point of application after we prayed together, but let's, let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come. We hold up our hearts before you asking that you would take inventory of them and show them all the things from our quote-unquote Egypt that we're holding on to rather than lunging toward you. Show us, oh God, these areas of, of, uh, these areas of, of fear and woundedness that keep us from moving forward in a life of worship that is full and complete and shows the absolute victory that you have over our past. Show it to us, oh God. But not just so we would see it, that we would repent of that faithlessness and that we would cry out to you like that small child who doesn't know exactly what they need, but you do, oh God. Would you meet us in the place of our need? And this we ask in Jesus' name, amen.